preparing for the end of Title 42. It's not fair to us not to give us the resources necessary to properly welcome these people. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann. Maureen is off this week. This is KPBS Midday Edition. And we take a deeper dive into uncertainty at the border. So the government's sort of specific plans around what what processes are going to look like after Title 42 ends are, are still not very clear. Revisiting one migrant's very personal 3,000-mile journey to cross into the U.S. And we talk tamales with my mom. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Local politicians voice concern over the potential end to Title 42, plus a look at how migrants are navigating the confusion. I'm Jade Hindman with MG Perez. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's Thursday, December 22nd. Title 42 has been used to turn away immigrants at the Mexican border 2.5 million times since it started in 2020 under the Trump administration. The motivation for the rule was to slow down the spread of COVID. Those immigrants trying to get in did not disappear. Many of them are still waiting for their chance to ask for asylum. Once Title 42 is lifted, a backlog of hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers is expected to stream into the U.S. through the southern border. Political leaders in East County are concerned that will overwhelm the county and its resources. San Diego County Supervisor Joel Anderson of District 2 joins us now to talk about it. Supervisor Anderson, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show. What do you anticipate will happen when and if Title 42 is lifted? Well, they were, what happens, first of all, uh, East County, uh, my district has welcomed more refugees and more asylum seekers than any place else in California. Uh, first, we had Iraqis, uh, then we had Syrians, then we had Afghans. And I wrote a letter to the Board of Supervisors preparing for the Afghans. Since then, our county has sent a letter to Governor Newsom asking for support and that plan was vetoed. So I sent a letter to President Biden. I sent a letter to uh, Governor Newsom. Uh, our border policies don't have to be a failure, but our communities are ill-prepared to welcome the number of people that they're proposing. And they're talking about anywhere from 400 to 1,500 a day. Uh, 
boosting El Cajon's population by, by 30%. And, and, you know, in East County, we have the second highest number of homeless. And I've been working feverishly over the last two years since I've been elected to solve that problem. And this is going to take us 10 steps backwards. And we want to be welcoming. We want those people who, who are being persecuted in their country to feel safe in America. But dumping them on our streets is not the answer. Your press conference this morning was held at the El Cajon Transit Center. Why? Because that's where they're proposing to dump them. And there's no facilities whatsoever uh, to take care of their needs. Remember, these people are going to need shelter. It's cold in East County right now. Uh, my house yesterday morning was 28 degrees. Uh, we don't know how they're, how they're dressed. They may need clothes. They're going to certainly need food. And they're going to need wraparound services. So we're essentially creating a homeless population that doesn't speak English. It is the worst of all scenarios. And yet, uh, in my district, we've opened our arms time and time again to welcome uh, refugees and, and asylum seekers. So it's not fair to us not to give us the resources necessary to properly welcome these people. So you have requested resources from the state and federal government. What do you specifically want from them? Well, we, we, we need financial support and um, we need to make sure that there's shelter, that, that there's clothes, that there's food and that there's wraparound services to help these people uh, find jobs. You know, we, we, we will have a crisis if all these people are on the streets as proposed. Uh, they're going to be easy targets for criminals to take advantage of. They don't even know, they won't even be speaking the correct language, English, and they may need medical services. So we have a potential of having our emergency rooms uh, chock full of people because they don't know how to get medical services other than the emergency room in 911. Look, we want to be great neighbors. We've been great neighbors. We've done a lot. And uh, part of it, I've led those charges in the past, but we've always had resources. Having the governor veto the county's plan to provide services for these folks with shelter, clothing, and food uh, leaves us high and dry with no plan whatsoever. And you can't just go on TV, claim you're the best governor, claim that you are the best president without actually delivering the services, the FEMA services and other services that we need to, to welcome these people properly. So the bigger picture, what do you propose is the solution to the Title 42 problem? Should it be lifted? Well, that that's above my pay grade. Uh, that's a federal question, a federal issue. My issue is making sure that we don't create a homeless population, that we don't mistreat people in my district, and that we uh, protect the quality of life for everyone. And so I'm going to allow uh, Congress and the president to debate that issue. But what I want to see is a real plan from both the governor and from the president that doesn't turn my district into Texas. And what we see coming out of Texas is outrageous. And it's not fair to the people that are coming across the border. And it's even more unfair to the people that live in those communities. Uh, we are a great nation and we deserve better from our government. One of the leaders joining you in concern for this situation is Andrew Hayes, Lakeside Union School District board member. Students are out for the holidays, but what do you think will happen in the new year at local campuses if Title 42 is lifted? Well, we, we heard today uh, not just 
uh, the school districts through uh, a, a school board president, Andrew Hayes, who talked about the impact on the schools and how they don't have the resources to assimilate these folks. And they may not even have the ability to, to we don't know what all the languages are. So we may not even have anybody who speaks that language in our school district. Uh, you know, we had Mayor John Minto from Santee talking about the impact that it will have on the infrastructure of his city. We had uh, uh, council member uh, Steve Goble who talked about the impact on El Cajon. And then, you know, uh, we had Virginia Hall from the Grossmont Healthcare District talk about what a stress it's gonna put on healthcare. And we know during the holidays, a lot of, a lot of people have heart attacks, they have strokes, and they may not be able to get the services that they need to save their life because we've stressed the system without supporting the people on the ground. And that's why we've all come together. We're not opposed or we're not trying to debate Title 42. We just wanna make sure the outcome is proper in that we get the support from the state and from the federal government that they keep saying that they're gonna provide but have yet to do. I've been talking with Joel Anderson, San Diego County Supervisor from District 2. Joel, thank you and happy holidays. Hey, you have a wonderful holiday too. Thank you so much for having us on. We're going to continue our conversation on Title 42 with Kate Morrissey, who reports on immigration for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Kate, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me. And we just heard from San Diego County Supervisor Joel Anderson, who recently sent a letter to President Biden on the issue. Uh, in it, he said, quote, it's unfair for our local governments and communities to shoulder this burden without the federal assistance required to do so. What has the federal government done to both prepare for the lifting of Title 42 and to help counties like San Diego that will play a big role in helping these migrants? So the government's sort of specific plans around what what processes are going to look like after Title 42 ends are, are still not very clear. But what we do know is that the federal government has already been supporting the shelters that we have on this side. Uh, we have two. Um, that receive people um, and, and put them in uh, hotel room accommodations. Uh, that was a change that happened during the pandemic. They used to be in more of um, what you might imagine uh, a shelter, like a big dormitory with people all together, but they go uh, now to hotel rooms um, and then they're uh, tested for COVID and, and then uh, eventually taken to the airport or the bus station or, or wherever um, to, to proceed to their final destination, to their loved ones around the country. Um, and the federal government does provide um, some of the funding to support those programs that we have here locally. And San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria wrote a similar letter. What is he asking for? So we see both sort of both sides of, of the aisle, whether you're talking about um, more Republican-leaning folks or, or more Democrat-leaning folks in the county, asking for more resources, asking for the federal government to up uh, what it is giving to these shelters to be able to do the work that they're doing. And the headline suggests thousands of migrants are waiting at the border to request asylum. What do we know about how many migrants are actually waiting to request asylum? We don't know the actual number of people who are waiting. 
we do know there are people waiting. I, I interview them every day that I go to Tijuana. Um, but we also know that that some amount of people have been able to get processed either because they applied for um, an exemption, which is a, there's a special program where nonprofits can identify um, certain asylum seekers to present at the port of entry. And so a very limited number of folks have been able to come in that way. And then um, there's also uh, complications with Title 42 and, and certain nationalities. Um, though it in theory applies to people from uh, anywhere, the logistics and sort of diplomatic concerns around expelling um, certain nationalities makes it um, less likely that people from certain places will be expelled. And so, you know, we see folks from, for example, Russia, um, Cuba, Ven um, Nicaragua, uh, used to be Venezuela, now Venezuela is actually um, able to be expelled to Mexico. So that was a recent change you might remember. Um, but we see those folks generally getting in already. And when you, when you look at the data of, of people being apprehended at the border, um, you actually see that after Title 42 went into effect, uh, the monthly apprehensions of, of adults, of single adults um, went up. And when you look at the, the, the changes that have happened with asylum seeking families, the, the levels are basically at pre-pandemic levels now what we do see is that the nationalities have shifted and some of that might be because they're able to to stay and and other folks are not um, and some of that might be uh, you know changing world conditions as well um, the pandemic has done a lot uh, to conditions in, in different countries in this hemisphere there are also a lot of authoritarian leaders who are making pretty serious um, sort of human rights violations in their countries. And, and so we see people fleeing all kinds of things uh, coming here. And so, you know, who has been left out and, and how many have been left out and how many are still sticking around waiting to see? Um, I think that's something we'll only know with time, but it's, it's not really clear yet exactly what that crossing picture is going to look like once it lifts. And you spent time reporting in Tijuana this week. Title 42 was supposed to lift yesterday. What's happening there um, as, as migrants wait? So everything appears to be pretty business as usual. The, the port of entry looks about the same as it looks on any other day. The U.S. has officials stationed right on the borderline to check and make sure people have documents in order to cross, uh, which is basically you know, a way for them to prevent asylum seekers from reaching U.S. soil and, and making that request for protection. Um, we don't know if that's going to change when Title 42 goes away, but there is a judge's order in another lawsuit that would suggest that that schematic might have to change after Title 42 goes away. Um, and then the exemption process is still going as long as Title 42 is, is going on. So there are very small groups of asylum seekers being taken in through the port of entry every day. Um, for people who thought Title 42 was ending yesterday and who did not find out about the Supreme Court decision, um, yesterday was very confusing. I spoke with several families who had come to the port of entry thinking that it was finally their day to be able to walk up 
to, you know, the door to the United States and request protection, and that was not the case. Uh, many of them have been living on the street. They don't have anywhere to go. The shelters are very full, um, and so they were they were in, they were very distressed. They were very confused. Um, I think you know this, we're right now in a in a sort of legal moment that's that's confusing even for those of us who follow you know the judicial system in the United States pretty closely. And so for folks who you know have not lived here and and are not following that, um, it's a very confusing moment more than anything. And I mean, the San Diego Rapid Response Network is a big part of helping migrants seeking asylum. How do they help? So when someone is released from immigration custody uh, after crossing the border, they are taken to the the shelter. Um, As I said, the shelter used to be um, sort of one central location where people would go and, and sleep in sort of cots on, on in like a dormitory type setting. But since the pandemic, it's it's become um, hotel rooms. And so they're taken to these hotel rooms that are paid for by the shelter. Um, you know, I've had so many people tell me stories of, you know, having the best sleep they've ever had in their life because they finally feel safe in this space. They're finally in a bed that is an appropriate size for their body that they don't have to share with, you know, so many other people. They're no longer sleeping on the floor. They're no longer sleeping in the street. Um, they're able to take a hot shower for the first time in months. Um, and, and they um, go through an intake process with the shelter staff. Um, they go through a medical screening with uh, doctors from uh, UC San Diego, a program uh, contracted through them. And then once they are cleared to travel, um, the shelter arranges with their family member, friend, loved one, sponsor um, to purchase those um, tickets for travel, often by plane. Um, and then the shelter staff facilitate them getting to the airport in time for their flights and make sure that they get through security. Um, sometimes it can be a little complicated. Uh, people often have their passports stolen or lost uh, when they're journeying to the United States. And so uh, they don't necessarily have an ID when when they're approaching TSA. And so um, the shelter has had to sort of work with TSA to work out a process. Um, and those folks are generally taken for um, a longer screening before they're allowed to enter the airport. But, they, but the TSA, from what I've seen, has been um, very uh, sort of understanding and in creating like an an efficient process to to help those people get through to their destination as well. Uh, The Rapid Response Network expects to play a big role in helping migrants when Title 42 lifts. What are the shelter operators anticipating and preparing for? So they are preparing for, uh, you know, potentially having more people coming through the shelter and, 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 going through different contingency planning, they've told me, in order to uh, be ready for, for whatever comes. And, and I think that's something that's not just specific to, you know, the potential ending of Title 42, but policies at the border change very frequently. And who is arriving at the border changes very frequently because different world events caused people to flee their homes in different moments. Um, and so I think, you know, the main thing that they're trying to do is make sure that they're ready for a lot of different types of situations. Um, we do know that the number of people requesting asylum at the port of entry is likely to go up 
after Title 42 lifts because that's something that's still pretty closed off unless you're able to get one of those exemptions. You can't really request asylum just walking up to the port. Um, and so I think the shelter is, you know, mindful of that and knowing that at the very least, there's going to be more folks coming through through that method and, and uh, they want to be ready to to receive them. I know they're also very engaged with all of the different levels of government. When I interviewed them, they emphasized to me that it needs to be all of the levels of government working with the nonprofits in order to make that uh, program successful. I've been speaking with Kate Morrissey, who reports on immigration for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Kate, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, one writer's personal story crossing into the U.S. solito, alone, and my mom's chicken tamales recipe. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. The back and forth over Title 42 has put yet another spotlight on the plight of migrants waiting to request asylum in the United States. But often overlooked is the actual journey that many migrants undergo on the path to a better life. At the age of nine, author Javier Zamora fled the violence and chaos of the Salvadoran Civil War and embarked on a 3,000-mile journey to safety with his mother. This journey and the perils Zamora faced along the way is the subject of his memoir titled Salito. I started by asking him about the meaning behind that title. Here's our conversation. The title means alone or little alone. And for me, there's threefold. So my mom leaves me when I'm five years old and my dad left when I was one years old. So from the ages of five until nine, I grew up with my grandparents and I felt this sense of being alone. Part two is the actual nine week journey that I embarked on in 1999 as a nine year old with no adults that I knew. And I'm with this group of six other strangers uh, being led by a coyote. And we embark on this 3000 mile nine week journey. And in it, I feel alone. And there's also, once I make it here, I want the readers to also question that title because it's these strangers who become family and they're the ones who help me survive. And from the ages of nine until 29, until I begin to write this book, I also, for the most part, carry the trauma that those nine weeks caused by myself alone again. I mean, what inspired you to want to turn your experiences into a memoir? A lot of the the media coverage 
back in 2017 and 2018 around the unaccompanied children crisis at the border. I had got the sense that a lot of the media outlets weren't really understanding us, those children, and us who have been those children immigrating here by ourselves um, in the sense that I just felt flattened and I wanted a truer, realer perspective to be out there. And I just needed to also write this for myself because I had been running away from those nine weeks from my nine-year-old self for, at that time, 20 years. And so my therapist really advised me to look that kid, meaning me, in the eyes in order for me to heal from the trauma that those nine weeks have caused and have stayed with me. Can you talk a little bit about the actual experience of your journey from El Salvador to the U.S.? I mean, what was that like for a small child? And how do you end up uh, forming a bond with these strangers that you traveled with? Uh, you know, it was, it was a lot. I was a sociable kid uh, before my mom left, and then I was very shy, and I refused to learn how to tie my shoes. So throughout these nine weeks, this is a kid who also didn't know how to swim. And the very first hurdle was the group of us, uh, other Salvadorans that were with me, we had to board on this boat to trespass from Guatemala to Mexico. And it's a 20-hour boat ride. By boat, I mean a skiff, a motorized skiff that had no roof. And I'm there with 30 other adults, and there's three boats, so about 100 adults in the ocean. And that's very, very scary. And it is also the trip that I get close to one of the men that was with us, who I called Chino. He must have been a 19-year-old young man. And also the mom, Patricia, who's 20, I want to say 28, and her 12-year-old daughter, Carla. And as the weeks progress, this is only week three. By week eight, we're at the U.S.-Mexico border after being dragged out of buses, having guns pointing at us, and losing most of our money because it got stolen by the Mexican police. We are much closer, and they become this surrogate family and who really chose to be with me and to love me and to take care of me. You know, in fleeing the violence of a civil war, you were really forced to leave behind a lot of family were you ever able to reconnect with them or follow up on how they were once you were older? You know, for most of my time in the United States, I have been undocumented, meaning that I didn't have the privilege to go back to my country. Of course, we did the weekly, bi-weekly, or at worst, monthly call back home to stay in touch with my grandparents who raised me and my cousin who stayed behind. And when I left in 99, my two aunts stayed behind, but then they've also since done the same trip, and now they live here in the United States. And it's just difficult to see now that I have a green card and I can go back. It's difficult to see my aunts and my mom being here and the money that they send back almost weekly hasn't really made that big a difference in my grandparents' lives because at the end of the day, they didn't want money. They want love and their daughters can't visit them. My grandma hasn't seen the youngest daughter since 2015. And since then, my grandma has fallen in a deep depression to the point that she literally hasn't. And this is not a metaphor. She has not left the house because she's afraid. And so it's been difficult. It's tough. 
and it's not unusual for the families that immigrants leave behind. Recently, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flew a group of migrants to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Those migrants have now filed a lawsuit against the governor for being misled about promises of safety and asylum. I'm curious as to what your reaction to all of that is. I hope they win their case, and I hope that they get treated as refugees, which they are. I guess I wrote this book in order, and after writing this book, I learned to call my journey and myself a survivor. And I think if we shift the narrative into not calling these immigrants simply immigrant or people who are breaking the law, but if we see them as people fleeing and as survivors of that 3,000 for Venezuelans and Colombians, like 6,000 mile trip, they're survivors. And hopefully if we treat them as such, we can treat them more humanely and stop using them as political pawns. You know, you mentioned this earlier, but so much of the immigration conversation in America is caught up in political policy, uh, depending on where you're coming from. So what do you think is missing from this conversation? I hope that after reading my book, you really get a fuller picture of what us immigrants have to survive in order to come here and work. And now you have names. You know me, you know Chino, you know Patricia, you know Carla. These are her full human beings that are not only their suffering, but I hope that I have also shown you their joy and wanting and love of life. We are more than the headlines. We are more than the tragic pictures and the tragic videos and the political using, the political pawning that we have become, you know? We are more than that. And just, I would hope readers and listeners, they remember that. I've been speaking with Javier Zamora, author of the new book, Salito, a memoir. Javier, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Now we're going to talk tamales. Just the mention of them can get your mouth watering. The warm masa filled with seasoned beef, or my favorite, chicken tamales, fresh out of the pot. Maybe a little guacamole or salsa on top, sprinkled with some cheese. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Whatever way you like them. Tamales are a Mexican Christmas tradition that has been filling bellies for centuries, mine included. I grew up in southeast Texas in a huge extended Mexican-American family that knew how to love and, more importantly, how to eat lots of tamales. And I am so excited to be going back there to spend time with family for the holidays. Joining us now is a master tamale maker who has been making them for almost 70 years since she was 11 years old, she tells me. Emma Elva Cañas Perez joins us from her kitchen in Houston, Texas, my hometown. And yes, she makes tamales, and she is also my beautiful and talented mother. Mom, welcome to Midday Edition. You are on the radio with your number one son. Thank you so much, MG. I'll try and do my best. Tell everybody why you call me your number one son. Because you're my oldest son, and you're the number one and then number two is abby jr and then joseph is the third son and my baby is uh, jacob okay so we got that out of the way mom you yeah. were talking to listeners all across san diego county california where were you born 
I was born in San Diego, Texas. It's about 10 or 15 miles outside Alice, Texas, going toward Laredo. Tamales were a big part of growing up, eating them for sure. But as kids, we had to earn the chance to help. How did that work? Well, they would give us our corn chucks, and they would give us all a little bowl of uh, masa that was ready to be spread. My mother and my aunts, they would look at them, and uh, they said, oh, you put too much. No, you put too little. That's the only thing that we could do. I remember it was probably, I was probably a teenager when they let me start putting uh, the beef in and, and having my own uh, pot. For someone who wants to make tamales for the first time, what's the recipe? They need 10 pounds of corn masa and 5 pounds Crisco. On the beef, I use white Crisco. The, the buttered Crisco, I use it on the chicken tamales. I don't use pure lard. Growing up, we would put pure lard in the masa. We put pure lard in the meat. But nowadays, people don't want it's It's too fattening. The chicken are very easy to make. Mainly, I make them just with white breast meat, put them in a bowl. The, the chicken's already cooked. And I just add the green salsa and some a little rotel tomato. And I put all the spices, garlic and salt and pepper. And I also add a consume. That's that, uh, that you make the chicken broth. I put that in there. It's all up to you how you want to make it. And you can refry beans and you can make refried bean tamales with strips of cheese or you can put jalapenos. You can also make sweet tamales in the masa. You add strawberries when you whip it and then you make sweet tamales or you can make pineapple tamales, whatever kind. I mean, it just goes on and on. What would you say is the most important ingredient for tamales? The most important ingredient? The love that you put into it. L-O-V-E. <laughs> I just celebrated a birthday on Monday. Now it's time for you to tell the story you love to tell about the day I was born. Go ahead, Mom. I was at my mother's house with my aunts and I think cousins and everybody. And we were making the tamales. We were spreading. I was spreading tamales. And all of a sudden, I got a contraction hard. And I yelled. And everybody... And my mother said, start putting up everything, start putting up everything. I said, wait, why? Because you're, you're ready to go. And that's how they took me, and they stopped making tamales. And they never forgave me for that because they were planning on having tamales that day, and, and uh, I stopped them. Everybody got excited. Well, I guess technically I stopped them, but I'm glad you yeah, stopped. Yes, you did. <laughs> okay, last question. Is it possible to eat too many tamales? And what did Grandma Pettis always say? All the time she would say, no mas hora, no mas hora, just today. <laughs> and that kept on through the years, and we kept eating tamales, and uh, I am in the process of that, so... Uh, I hope that maybe you all can uh, have gotten a few notes of how I make them and uh, you start practicing and then let MG know how they came out. <laughs> Are the chicken tamales ready for me? They're going to be ready and also something else. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, you always spend your birthday here with us. It'll be ready. Your cake and your tamales will be ready when you get here. I've been talking with Emma Elva Cañas Perez, master tamale maker and my mother. I love you, Mom. I'll be home for Christmas, and I'll see you soon. I love you, too. Goodbye, and thank you. To see Mom's recipe for chicken tamales, go to kpbs.org. The National Guard was about 9,000 troops short of its recruiting goal this year. That's caused Guard leaders to try new ways to persuade people to join. From Long Island, Desiree DiOrio reports for the American Homefront Project. This holiday season, the 42nd Infantry Division of the New York Army National Guard took its concert band on the road. They brought holiday classics to community centers across the state, including the Warrior Ranch on Long Island, where veterans and civilians train rescued horses. Staff Sergeant Pamela File plays the flute. We're really excited about bringing some holiday music to as many veterans as we can, but also just community members. The performances are part outreach and part recruiting, with guard members front and center in the communities they serve. The band is a very forward-facing unit. We kind of look at ourselves as musical ambassadors to our communities, and we like to bridge the gap between the military and our civilian population. In part because of outreach like this, New York was the only state in the country to meet its recruitment goal for the Army National Guard this year. 31 states fell short of their Army recruiting goals by over 40 percent, according to the National Guard Bureau, the federal office that oversees the states. Treating every event like an opportunity is part of a strategy, according to Lieutenant Colonel Josh Heimroth. He's in charge of recruitment and retention for the New York Guard. There's no one way of doing business. You've got to have multiple lines in the pond to catch the fish. He says after soldier safety, the top priority is recruitment. That means large-scale efforts like job fairs and social media outreach, but also small things recruiters need that sometimes get overlooked. That could be as little as making sure their computer is up and running. They have a fuel card and a vehicle that can get them to and from their appointments. At a roundtable discussion in September, National Guard leaders said recruiters have had a tough year. General Daniel Hokinson is chief of the National Guard Bureau. They have told me pretty much in every location I go just how difficult the current recruiting challenges are that they're facing. For many of them, it's unprecedented in their time as a recruiter. There's competition from other industries and universities. He says the labor shortage doesn't help, and meeting the physical requirements to serve can be hard. Hokinson is pushing for major reforms to recruit new troops and keep the ones who are already serving. Among his ideas, year-round government-financed health care. When we look at recruiting and retention, really the most important aspect of that, ability to be ready whenever we're needed, health care is absolutely critical to making that happen. Hokinson says out of about 440,000 guardsmen serving today, 60,000 don't have health insurance at all. But year-round health benefits would be expensive, over $700 million by Hokinson's estimate, and Congress would have to authorize it. Meanwhile, some states have undertaken their own initiatives to attract recruits. A handful of states are paying finders fees to current guardsmen who bring in new troops. 
and Tennessee is among several states that have set up programs to help recruits pass entrance exams. Major General Jeff Holmes is the adjutant general of the Tennessee Guard. We partnered with our state institutions and colleges, and so they're providing courses that you can go and take and learn to test again. Holmes says Tennessee also offers health and exercise training for potential recruits who don't meet height and weight requirements. There's certain things, red lines, that I would say that we cannot really sacrifice. However, we do have to recognize what society is providing us. Back at the horse ranch on Long Island, Flute player Pamela File says any time the band plays for the public, it's an opportunity to talk up the benefits of National Guard service. We only get together one week in a month, two weeks a year. The rest of the time, we are civilians out in this community. So everything we do, we know can potentially bring people into our ranks. I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation. Still ahead, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Cinema junkie Beth Accomando weighs in. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with MG Perez. Christmas movies are one of the ways we can get into the holiday spirit. And there's a genre for almost everyone. Hallmark-type movies are great for rom-com lovers. And then there's the classics, of course. But for people who prefer their cinematic experience with a bit more action. Houston, Texas. It's Christmas. Someone special is coming to town. And it's not Santa Claus. And for that, we turn to KPBS arts and culture reporter and cinema junkie, Beth Accomando. Beth, welcome. Thank you. So let's start by defining what makes a Christmas movie. Okay, to start with, I just want to offer this to our listeners. I cry when King Kong dies, but something like Little Women makes me roll my eyes and gag a little. So that's just kind of like a little litmus test to let them know where I'm coming from on all of this. But the basics for a Christmas movie are very simple. It must be set at Christmas time, and it must have a sense of the holiday in terms of music and or decorations. That's it. Okay, so Die Hard, let's let's settle it. It's a Christmas movie, right? It's a Christmas Absolutely. movie. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. No question. There we go. <laughs> all right. So listen, so not all Christmas movies are the same. So what are the subgenres? 
Well, obviously, there are the sentimental ones, and some of these I actually love, something like It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Story and the old Rudolph and Grinch TV specials. Those are great. But most of the Christmas Carol films are hard to watch for me, and Christmas comedies I often find unbearable, like Elf and the Santa Claus movies. And most Christmas romances, even something like Love Actually, tend to make me cringe just a little bit. But then we have Christmas horror, and that's more toward my liking. And part of that is because it tends to skewer holiday cheer. So I love films like the original Black Christmas and Gremlins. But the subgenre that we celebrate at my house is Christmas action films. Now, you've been working on a Christmas action list for years and with someone special. Can you tell us about that? Yes, so this is a mother-son bonding project. I'm an action film junkie, and I raised my son Tony on Jackie Chan films. So one year we were doing a Shane Black marathon, and we noticed how many of his films seemed to be set at the holidays. So we did a Shane Black action Christmas marathon with films like Lethal Weapon, Long Kiss Goodnight, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And then I thought, what if we found 12 action films set at Christmas to watch on the 12 days of Christmas? And what if we could plug them into that song we all know? Well, Beth, go ahead and sing that song we all know. All right. So we're working on this song and I have absolutely (laughs) zero musical skills. But it would start with on the first day of Christmas, Shane Black sent to me the first Lethal Weapon movie. So that's how it starts, and I'm very proud of one lyric, which is instead of five golden rings, we have, I come in peace. So we're working on it. It still needs perfecting. That's great. It's great. All right. Now, there is the perfect action Christmas film, and it's not from Shane Black. So what is it? Okay, for this, I'm going to let my son answer that question. So here's Tony. That would have to be Die Hard. That's the one that starts the whole list. I think it's the perfect Christmas action movie. Not only does it take place at Christmas, Christmas plays a key role in the movie. It has Christmas music. There's multiple scenes with Christmas decorations. And it's also a really fun action movie that I can watch every year. And that's a key factor. It has to be rewatchable. And so we have debates about which films deserve to be on the list. Die Hard 2 and Cobra pop on and then get bumped off as we discover new films that might work better. Recent additions have been the Danish film Writers of Justice and this year's Violent Night. And Tony has also added a darkly comic Scottish corrupt cop film called Filth. Happy Christmas, Uncle. Don't you happy Christmas me. Come again? Look at the state you're in, Bruce. You're a disgrace to the force. But he's still debating that one. I really want to put Filth on, but I'm also not fully convinced that's an action movie. So I'm kind of back and forth. I would almost put Fat Man. But that was not, I guess if we put Violent Night, Fat Man could kind of work. See, this is the problem. We, we have like a solid six. And then the rest are still in contention. <laughs> All right. So why do you think action Christmas movies appeal to you especially? I love action films. And they just bring me such joy and good cheer. And there's something about kick-ass action in the snow against the backdrop of holiday sentimentality that I just love. Plus, action films are fun to watch as a group, which makes them fun for the holidays. Yeah, you know, there's just this grit to them. I I, I agree, Beth. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the films that top the list and uh, that get played on Christmas? Okay, the Christmas Day and Christmas Eve films are always the same. Welcome to the party, pal! 
and those are Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. And so far, nothing has been able to topple those from the top positions. But Christmas figures prominently in these stories, and the action is great, and so they're always fun to watch. If you have plans for a calm, quiet evening, it's time to kiss them all. Good night. But next up are the Shane Black delights of Long Kiss Goodnight and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So I would say those are the four that are always on our Christmas viewing, but the others kind of rotate in and out as we find new films and decide what mood we're in that particular year. And there is the Christmas movie list. Thank you, KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando. Uh, for the full list of the best Christmas action movies, according to Beth and her son, Tony, head to kpbs.org. Beth, thank you so much. Merry Christmas. Coming up on KPBS Evening Edition at 5 p.m. on KPBS Television, how king tides may impact the coast. And join us again tomorrow for KPBS Midday Edition at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.